we were in negotiations for investing in real estate. They're winning, they're making money. What's up everyone? Welcome to the Real Estate Educators Podcast, where we provide the education you can build on. I am your host, Kevin Amolsch. This podcast is so much fun. We're now into season two because we're helping real estate investors and we're focusing in on the content creation behind that. So if you're an investor or if you're looking for investor clients, this is the podcast for you. If you haven't yet, quick, leave us a five-star review. Help us help more real estate investors and more educators just like you. Got a super special guest with me today. His name is amazing. Uh, Kevin Ortner. We've known each other for quite some time, but we had never really had like any deep conversations. I'm learning more about your story from your bio. I didn't know you are a pilot, for example, but I know about your company, of course, because we've done a lot of business together. You guys have, uh, you know, the, I think you were part of the founders, but Brent, Brenton, I think was his name. He would come out and speak at our events in Minneapolis. Um, so I've known about you guys for a long time. So I'm super excited to get to know more about your story and Renters Warehouse, uh, one of the largest management companies in the entire country. And you have two decades of experience. So we're super lucky to have you on, man. How's it going? It's going good, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. And um, thanks for all the kind words about the business. Uh, you know, it's been a great partnership between uh, Renters Warehouse and Pine Financial Group for, I don't know how long it's been, but I know I've personally done deals with you guys. You guys have financed some of my um, homes that I've, uh, you know, flipped. I've, I've done some uh, purchases that I've rehabbed and turned into rental properties and later refinanced. And uh, you guys have been great partners in that. You've worked with some of my clients, really enjoy your events. And so it's exciting to be on here talking with you today. Great. And so Winter's Warehouse, it's franchised, right? That's right. We, That's how you, well, a little grown. bit of both. So we started the business back in 2007. Um, I've been investing in real estate uh, for even longer than that, but we started the business 2007 uh, as just a local property manager in, based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So big market for you guys. And then later expanded the business through franchising. We sold about 28 franchises across the country. I was the owner of four of those franchises. And then in 2015, beginning of 2016, we sold a majority stake of the business to a private equity partner. Uh, that we still have in the business today. And we ended up doing a couple of things. We bought back uh, about half of our franchises and began expanding from a corporate footprint as well. So today we're in about 25 markets that we own corporately. And we have additional 15 great franchises across the country uh, and altogether manage about 15,000 homes uh, in 40 markets and just over 20 states. Yeah, that's huge. 15,000 homes. And your focus really is a um, single family stuff. You don't, you don't do any, I want to say any, but you don't really focus in on the big apartment complexes and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. So single family homes, um, or really, I think the easiest way to explain it is almost anything that would, you know, uh, you know, lending programs would qualify as single family, right? So one to four unit buildings. Uh, we do a lot of that duplexes, triplexes, um, you know, a single condo unit in a in a condo development or a townhome, things like that. Uh, you know, a majority of what we have are detached single single family homes. And then we've got a, a mix of, of other kind of single unit or small multifamily properties uh, that we manage. We don't do large apartments and things like that. Got it. So your, your target is really the mom and pop investor. So yes. our audience. Yeah, we're a majority mom and pop. We do work with some <laughs> institutional owners of single family rental homes. So, you know, you've probably seen 
the articles out there of Wall Street buying up Main Street, which is yeah. not true, but uh, you've certainly heard of those institutional investors coming in and, and buying up, you know, hundreds or thousands of homes in different markets across the country. And we work with them both on helping them buy new homes for their um, for their portfolio, as well as, of course, managing them. But that said, about 75% of our portfolio, uh, oh, probably 80% of our portfolio is mom and pop kind of smaller retail investors that own, you know, one to five homes. Okay. I, I, I want to get into your story, but before that, we jumped right into the renter's warehouse, which is great. <laughs> I want to learn more about that also, but institutional investors, that's making me think like I, people are concerned with this, right? They're, they're buying up the inventory and we already have a lack of inventory. How, what is this doing to the market? And then it's, it's gotten such publicity and so big that now there's legislation proposed to force institutional investors. I think it's a pretty big number, like 50 million or something. If you're a fund of 50 million or more, they're going to force you to start liquidating. What are your, what do you know about that? And what are your thoughts on the government getting involved in that? Man, that's a big question. We could take a whole show. I know. Uh, just talking about that one. So we'll try to keep it brief. Right. But yes, yeah, definitely heard about that. We're of course following that. Um, I think first and foremost, it's important to realize that institutional investors, as how they're defined, especially around like these bills and things like that from Congress, own less than 3% of all the single family rental properties in the country. So not 3% of the total housing stock, less than 3% of all the single family homes for rent. So depending on the stats you look at, in you know if they include these two to four unit buildings and things like that. There's 16, 17 million single family homes to rent across the country. And the, you know, these larger institutions own less than 3% of those 16 million homes. So it's, they still own a lot of homes, but it's, it's not a big number. Right. This industry is still dominated by, you know, my clients and your clients, local real estate investors, mom and pop investors who own one to five homes. I think it's about 80% of those 16 million homes are owned by, uh, those who own under five, right? Yep, so a very fragmented industry and very, very much small investor dominated. And so I think the story of these institutional investors, a little bit overblown and blown out of proportion, given they own such a small market share of the total rentals. And then put on top of that, you know, how much of the real U.S. housing stock do these institutions own? It's, it's, it's a very small number. Um, so that said, like, is institutional investment in this space a good or bad thing, right? I think that's the other the other piece of your question, whether they own a huge swath of the single family rental homes available or a small piece, uh, you know, is, is it a good thing? And I think it's like asking if any investor is good to have it into the, in, into the market, right? Because there's, you know, been stories of smaller institutional investors, maybe, you know, not maintaining homes well, or or those different stories to read that cause some of this frustration that's out there. And that's by far the exception, not the rule. I think institutions by nature, because of the, the type of capital that's backing them and the type of responsibility they have, and, and, the, and the fact that they want to avoid headline risk, take great care of their homes, take great care of their residents. We work with some of these institutional owners, um, and they have very high standards. And so I think they are delivering a good quality product to the ultimate resident. Um, there's been talk for, I would say, going on four or five years now in the institutional industry 
around resident experience and the importance of maintaining occupancy and renewals and not having, you know, short, you know, residents who only stay for a year or two building those relationships. Cause ultimately the residents happy and stays in the home, their returns are higher. They don't have vacancy and downtime and all that kind of stuff. And so there's a focus on resident experience. And so um, I think they're providing quality rental properties in areas that need it for residents, you know, and then, and then, I'll, I'll try and wrap up my thoughts on this quickly, but the, you know, the other component of, of these in institutions coming into different markets and, you know, is it good or bad for the local market? A lot of times they are helping smaller retail or mom and pop investors, however you want to refer to them, um, you know, monetize their portfolio. And a lot of times they're distressed portfolios. We've seen this, right? There's a, a you know, a, a gentleman or, or a woman or a husband and wife or whatever it might be, some partner, three, five homes, something happens, they get behind on deferred maintenance. Um, you know, there's upgrades needed in the property. And they just can't afford to do it. Now they're renting those homes for, you know, probably under market rent. And it is a negative experience sometimes for a resident. And it's a situation that no one wants to be in. And they're able to sell those homes to an institution that can come and invest in the property, bring them back up to standards. And then again, provide a great rental property for people. And I think provide an option for people who are looking to get out in a distressed situation and, and, and maybe not have to fire sale, liquidate them or, or have their properties foreclosed on. So there's benefits from that perspective as well. You know, and then I think the, um, that's probably, that's probably some good points to stop there. I mean, yeah, no, those are great. About, you know, whether, whether the federal government should be legislating and forcing totally. uh, people to be selling their housing like that, that's a whole discussion for another day. But I think if you look at, the the impact that these funds are having on local communities um, and the stories that are out there and the headlines that are out there around that the institutions are responsible for the reason why there's no inventory on the market, that's just not true. Um, they're not even, most of them today for the last two years haven't even really been buying homes because the numbers don't pencil. Right. So they haven't been buy, buying houses, homes in two years, so they're not creating an inventory issue. Um, and it's really the supply and demand imbalances that are there that are creating this inventory issue. And and so I think they're being scapegoated a bit and it's a bit of a publicity stunt for some people, people in Congress. And I think it's going to be fascinating to watch, see what happens. I think I, I love it. I mean, we, Kevin, we agree hundred percent on everything. Um, I, I didn't know how that was going to go when I asked you the question, I, I assumed it was going to be, <laughs> I assume we would agree because you're a property manager and you have right. an interest in managing uh, institutional investors properties. But so my thoughts are, first of all, there's no way this goes anywhere, right? It's, right. it's a publicity stunt. I totally agree. Um, so you say it's going to be inter interesting to watch. I'm like, I don't think it's gonna be interesting at all. I mean, maybe that's one thing we don't agree on. There's not going to be anything here. Sure. Um, here's the problem. Fair. I agree with you that institutional investors are probably better property managers for two reasons. One, they have the they have the money to to maintain, and they hire professional managers. A lot right. of mom and pops don't do that, so right. they're hiring someone like Renters Warehouse who knows what the heck they're doing to manage the property. So I think it's actually positive, especially on the renter side of thing. See, now whenever the government does something like this, I don't want to get too political here, but there's always a byproduct, right? And sometimes that byproduct is unintended, like an unintended consequence. Mm -hmm. So if you are telling me you're going to force institutional investors that are managing properties and creating clean rentals, and they have to take those off the market because we're trying to, to help affordability, that's the argument. Well, maybe you're going to help. I agree with you. It won't because it's such a small percent, but maybe it'll help with median values or 
home home ownership affordability, but what does it do to rent affordability without right. that inventory? Right. So that's what we're not thinking about. There's two sides to this. Um, so are you going to get? Are you looking for votes? And people are going to love your. You're looking for affordability, but they're not talking about the other side. So I just was curious if it ever would pass, which it won't. I don't believe. What damage would that cause? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think it's going to pass. So maybe it won't be as exciting to watch as I as I mentioned <laughs> it might because you're right. Maybe maybe nothing comes of it, but it'll. It's certainly intriguing watching the commentary about it now, totally. and. The, there's always unintended consequences when you when you start trying to mess with free markets, right? And uh, you're right. Maybe in certain markets where you know Atlanta, for instance, Atlanta is like the single family rental capital of the world from an institution perspective. Tons of institutional ownership in Atlanta. I think it's been great for the city. Um, and uh, I've really, you know brought up some great neighborhoods and rehabilitated a lot of homes since 2007, 2008, 2009. Uh, but there's a lot there. So if they had to sell them, what does that do to that market? Probably does drive down median values and, and home ownership for, for folks can become more affordable. Sure. But to your point and a great point, what about people who still can't afford to buy a house? They don't have the down payment or they just don't want to own mm -hmm. a house. Um, you know, rent's going to go through the roof because you're That's taking right. off out of the rental pool, a significant number of homes. And how do you address that affordability issue? Um, you know, so it's just fascinating. I think, you know, all of a sudden you start getting into private property rules and rights and, and, you know, it's a slippery slope. Some people may say, Hey, this is fine. It's a business and it's an institution. And so who cares? But that stuff rolls downhill quickly. And all of a sudden your clients and my clients, people listening uh, or watching today, you know, a lot of, Folks that own one home own it in a, a LLC, which is a business. Uh, and so, you know, do those new rules or way of looking at, you know, private property owned by businesses start affecting everyone? I think it does pretty quickly. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And, you know, I think the threshold in the bill as written is 50 million. But if institutions want to buy properties, if that's really their their model, they're just going to start a new fund every 50 million. They'll start a new one. It's not like it's going to actually impact anything. Right. That's a whole different, well, you know, and 50 million sounds like a huge number, mm. right? $50 million fund. But you know, a lot of these oh. average home was 350,000. It's like 140 houses. Like that's not that many houses. Right. Oh, that's um, you, And you there's, I know a lot of investors, private, you know, entrepreneurial, small investors that have built their way up over the last 20 years that own 150, 200 houses. Yeah. And they're not institutional by any means. They don't have institutional capital. They've done it through either their own, you know, sweat equity and and grinding it out, uh, or doing some friends and family fundraising or whatever it is. But you know, a couple hundred home portfolio is uh, it's an incredible and amazing thing. I'm not minimizing it, but it's not it's 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 not as big as fifty million dollars sounds, right? It's really not. I agree. All right, man. So sorry to digress there and what our normal flow is, but I, I was just interested in that here, get your in, input on that because it's just hitting the news. Right. So right. I, I was curious. Um, all right, man, take us back. You were a pilot. Yes. And then you went from that to real estate. I've actually heard several other pilots have done the same thing. So curious, like how did, how did you get in, interested in real estate to begin with when you're out there flying planes? Yeah. It's interesting. I have run into, um, quite a few pilots in the real estate world too, that they may not be full-time in real estate. Uh, they're maybe still flying, but have significant real estate investments or into it. And some have transitioned full-time into real estate investors. Um, 
20 years ago, I thought it was just me, but uh, I was wrong. So yeah, I was a corporate pilot. So I flew corporate jets around the country. Um, this afforded a very unique and interesting schedule where I was on call, um, you know, quite a bit, but there may be weeks I flew two days and there was weeks that maybe I flew, you know, seven, 10 days in a row. Um, so, you know, but on the road and even as a corporate pilot, unlike an airline pilot, you know, airline pilots are kind of flying all day, getting their eight hours, nine, you know, eight hours of duty time. As a corporate pilot, you might fly a flight, you know, three hour flight from Minneapolis to Florida and then be there for a couple of days with uh, whoever you brought or until the plane needs to be re relocated somewhere else because flying an empty airplane is very costly. So we'd sit um, and I'm not someone who likes to sit. I've been an entrepreneur my entire life. So that type of job and being a pilot um, allowed me to do other things, you know, even if I was on the road, um, could be, you know, researching or, or looking at different investments or businesses, wherever that might be. And uh, like I said, I've been investing in real estate over 20 years about my first uh, rental property uh, in college, sophomore year of college, um, and rented out, you know, part of it to friends of mine and ended up living rent free and thought, geez, this is a really great, uh, this is a great deal. Uh, so got hooked. Uh, as you've heard the story of many people who get hooked and uh, bought a few other properties uh, with my father. And, you know, uh, we did some things uh, when I was out flying around and ultimately kind of said like, this could be a really neat business. I was managing the houses myself, uh, but I started, you know, being a pilot flying around, you know, first comes around, maybe you forget to collect rent or you kind of forget to get on that maintenance repair that or repair maintenance request that came in. Um, this is why people should use professional property managers. <laughs> I started, you know, looking around and it was interesting. Everything was kind of small mom and pop operations. This was, you know, 2000 and, you know, five, six ish. And oddly enough, technology really hadn't made its way into this space, um, real estate even, but certainly property management. And you know, being able to stay connected with my property manager, my properties on the go while I was flying around the country, like it just really wasn't there. And I thought, geez, there could be a great opportunity to apply some technology to this business and modernize it a bit um, and take it into the next century. Uh, plus, I like the recurring revenue streams of managing business and all that kind of stuff. So we thought we could disrupt it a little bit. Um, and I, I teamed up with uh, Brenton Hayden, as you mentioned earlier, who is the founder of Renner's Warehouse. I ran into him. Um, and said, hey, I'm thinking about, you know, starting a property management company. He's like, well, come come join in with me here. I got I got some things going on already. And I did that. And the rest is history. And now I've been doing this full time since uh, uh, 2009 uh, at Runner's Warehouse. So I'm picturing you, man. You're up in the plane <clears throat> trying to learn about real estate with your rich dad, poor dad book. Putting an <laughs> autopilot. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you're you're yeah. talking about downtime. I assume that's once the plane's landed. But uh, in my mind, I was like, oh, it's autopilot. Nice, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, we, you know, we try and pay attention when we're up in the air, even if the autopilot's on. Heard that but, smart. Uh, a lot yeah. of downtime on the ground, um, just kind of hanging out. And uh, so, you know, try and use that time wisely. And uh, and that's what I did. So, yeah, we have a lot of, we have a lot in common, actually. I, I've never been a pilot. I would like to be. But, uh, you know, I, I bought my first house. Actually, before I really went into college, I was in the army and and I moved into it when I got out of the army and then I was in college and, and then I rented it out to some buddies and did the whole house hacking thing before we had yeah. a term for it, right? Right. So yeah, interesting that you got started that way. So after that first house, you got hooked. 
even though you were living in it, how did you acquire your first rental? I think a lot of people struggle with getting that first pure rental property. Well, that property became my first pure rental property because um, I moved out of that. It was a, a townhouse near ASU where I went to school, ended up buying a house uh, when I graduated out in Mesa, Arizona, and just converted the uh, you know that condo or townhouse into kind of the first pure rental, although I didn't acquire it that way. But I think that's a great way for people to get into it, right? So that was how I you know got that first rental, bought my house. Um, and that ended up, uh, you know, partnering uh, with my dad at the time coming out of college. I didn't have a ton of money saved. And, uh, we bought, uh, you know, a townhouse in Minneapolis where I'm originally from, but where I'm back to today, um, together as well as then, you know, leading into the, you know, Oh nine time period, uh, and the great recession and the real estate downturn, uh, bought a couple other properties, you know, that I, you know, I don't know, a couple of times thought I called the bottom of that program. And of course it didn't. So bought properties and the price, but here, here's the deal that didn't bother me at all because when I go in and buy rental properties, I'm thinking about owning them for 30 or 40 or 50 years. And I put, you know, uh, 30 year fixed mortgage mortgages on all the properties. And like, so the value went down, you know, don't really Ooh. care. It's going to be up. I guarantee it's going to be higher in 50 years than it is today. So, you know, it wasn't a big thing, but it was kind of funny. I remember calling my dad and saying, hey, God, this is such a great deal. And um, it was in the same development. We had a different property that we had bought, you know, many years ago. And, and yeah, I think at one point in, you know, the craziness of, of the real estate industry in 2005 and six, you know, it was a $250,000, $260,000 property. We picked it up for like one sixty. dollars This is great. Yeah. And, you know, it, it went down like 120 at one point or something like that. But again, I still own it today. And it, I think it's worth, you know, $375,000 or something. So, you know, those, those little, those things are going to happen. Uh, but yeah, so that's, that's how I started, you know, buying some more homes. And, and then I got into renovating houses and I've flipped a few houses, uh, but flipping is just not my game. I mean, I enjoy it. It's nice. You can, you can make quick, you know, make a quick buck on a house. Uh, but the only properties I ever really regret are the ones I've sold. Right. I'm like, man, I wish I still had that property because it'd be a great rental and I could have it for long term and all that kind of stuff. So I'm more of a, if I rehab something, I'm rehabbing it to uh, rent long term. This episode is brought to you by Pine Financial Group. Pine Financial is a private lender specializing in short-term rehab lending to real estate investors. Got a property that needs some love? We can help. We are able to offer funding solutions because we raise private money from individual investors. With more than 15 years of experience, Pine offers passive investors an alternative that provides stability, consistency, and security to your portfolio. If you like real estate but want to avoid the ups and downs and effort, a Pine mortgage fund could be a perfect fit for you. Accredited investors will experience an 8% preferred return and profit sharing. Diversify your portfolio out of Wall Street and into Main Street with a Pine Financial Group mortgage fund. Get more information at pinefinancialgroup.com. That's pinefinancialgroup.com. I tell our clients, Kevin, all the time, like you're, you could fix and flip and make a really good living. You, I mean, there's a lot of money in it, especially if, For you're, sure. if you're good. But you're on a treadmill, right? And we call right. you, we call we call ourselves real estate investors. And as soon as we stop working, the money stops. Right. How is that investing? It's not. So I, I explain all the time, like I I make my money from fix and flippers. I want you to do that. Right. <laughs> Selfishly. Right. 
but that's maybe not what's best for you. Have you thought about keeping every third or fourth deal and just building up that passive income? And so that's something that I preach a lot. And I got to tell you, man, people do not listen. They, yeah. they see that, <laughs> they see that $30,000 payday and they want that, right? right. They saw the, the TV show of flip, flipping properties or whatever, right. and they, and they want that, but right. yeah, this is how true wealth is, is built, right? Yeah. And look, it's, I tell my clients all the time, I wrote about it in my book, you know, I joke, it's, it's not get rich quick by any means it's get rich slow, but it's do it right. And it's leveraging time. Um, it's leveraging other people's money, you know, uh, and all those things about it. And so the earlier you start, you know, building a portfolio of, of rental homes, the better off you're going to be. And uh, it's just not, it's not exciting, right? You know, right. flipping a house and making 50 grand or hundred grand or 30 grand or whatever the number is like, that's exciting. It's mm -hmm. fun. And uh, you want to go do it again, buying a house, putting a tenant in it, you know, getting a little bit of money in your bank account after, after you're paying all your expenses every month and and then waiting for 20 years. Like that's not exciting, but it works really well. Right. It's pretty and, awesome uh, when you're on transformational beach. for your yeah, family, but it's not yeah, exciting. exactly. It's the only business that I know <clears throat> it's a get rich guarantee. Right, I, I right. really believe that. Right. Um, it's not quick. No, it's, it's actually slow and can be sometimes painful, but it's a guarantee. So if you really want that wealth and that freedom that we're all searching for, this is a way to do it. And you know, it's going to work. Right. You just got to be consistent and um, and just be patient, right? Right. Um, so I, st I talk about consistency and patience, and sometimes it's hard to be consistent and patient when you have like nightmare tenants. So let me, I just got to hear a story, man, because you got more experience in this than anybody. Uh, give me a story. What's a, what's a nightmare tenant story? And what'd you learn from it? You know, what's interesting is... I, man, like we said, our company manages 15,000 homes across the country. I, you know, over the last 15 years, this business, I've probably managed over 50,000, you know, unique homes or something like that. I, I should count it up. I don't really know. Um, like we don't have that many horror stories. I'll think of one and I'm sure I'll share one with yeah, you. No but worries. It's, it's interesting, right? Because everyone wants to talk about that. And that's, I think, one of the fear factors for people of getting into real estate investing is they hear these and I go around, whether it's your events in Minneapolis, where we've, where we've uh, participated in before. And people ask this question, man, what if my, what yeah. if my tenants beat up the house or they don't pay rent or whatever that might be? Um, it's like, it doesn't really actually happen that much. And if it does, it's like small, the deposit oh. covers most of it. Maybe you're a little bit of money, but it's, you know, and I think the reason why this is out there is it's almost like we just talked about with, with long-term, real estate investing, it's not that exciting of a story to tell people. Um, it's much cooler to sit around the, you know, the campfire with your friends and talk about, you know, the hundred thousand dollars you made flipping a house last month versus the new rental that you got and, you know, put 20% into it right? <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, I think the same goes for these, these bad tenant stories, right? Uh, no one, you never go uh, into a gathering of real estate investors or just family members you know, we, we've got the holidays coming up when we're filming, filming and recording this podcast and you don't go to the gathering and someone says, you know what, let me tell you what my tenant who pays rent on time every month and has treated my house really, really well. Like, let's talk about that story, right? It's usually a story that starts with, I know a guy whose brothers, sisters, like, you know, friends, uncle had a house and this happened. Let me tell you this story. It's crazy, right? Um, 
and those then that's what's propelled out there so so people think it happens more frequently than it does so that i think is the first note if you're talking about or thinking about investing in real estate it really doesn't happen very often um i think uh, trying to think of of a great serve this is how much it doesn't really happen um yeah i just tell people like look man it's a risk this, yeah yeah i agree with you it doesn't happen that often but it does happen and how bad do you want it like right do you want that freedom that we're all going for and trying to get or, or not i mean because here's a path you know it's 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 proven it's laid out this is what it is and every once in a while there's going to be obstacles just like anything else you do yeah yeah you know and yeah, I mean, like, I'm really racking my brain. I'd love to share with you a great story. And it's like, the, it does like how little it happens. I'm like, I don't even know if I have a great one. Like, yeah, sure. We've had homes where we go in and like, you know, there's damage. Uh, and it was intentional damage for maybe someone that wasn't paying the rent we had to evict. Um, and when we had to clean it up, but we have definitely, uh, without just, without giving away a lot of details, because uh, it, it may not be, but we've had interesting things happen because it's a thing that happened. You know, we've had, um uh like we've we've literally had gotten phone calls from the police because we've had residents that have been murdered in properties right um we've had uh, phone calls because our tenants have died outside of their properties you know from some something gone bad uh we've had you know uh drug problems in houses we've had other kind of things like i don't really remember specific ones but we've had crazy stuff one of the lines we talk about in this business being a property manager is like like the day you think you've seen it all, like yeah. generally tomorrow you've seen something new. You know, it's that just, just happened like, to me. That literally just happened to me last week. I've been doing this for over 20 years. I've been lending for uh, 18 and I just experienced something last week I've never seen before. Right. You're, and you're like, now I've seen it all. <laughs> yeah, now exactly. I've seen it all. Right. <laughs> and and a month from now, you're like, wow, okay. I didn't think about that. So, yeah. you know, but it's, um, look, yeah, sure. It's part of the risk doesn't it's few and far between and if you hire a professional property manager or at least get educated from a property manager listening to this kind of podcast it's just going to help and and to be honest with you all of this stuff comes down to selecting the right tenants to be in your home mm -hmm. right and yeah. doing thorough background checks um and part of finding the right tenants to be in your property is to have a quality home right it doesn't need to be a high income rental it could be a lower income affordable rental property but what I mean by having a good home is just like have it ready for the tenant to move into, right? And have it clean and have it well-maintained because you're going to attract the kind of people that you want based on that, right? We have clients that say, hey, can we, I don't know, money's tight right now. Can we, you know, why don't you put it on the market, show it to some tenants. And if if they if they want us to repaint the walls, like tell me well after they sign the lease or we'll do this after they sign the lease. And we're like, just do it first. Because here's the deal. Someone who's going to come in and move into a property that probably needs new carpets or at least a shampoo on the carpets and it's got marked up walls and that kind of stuff. You know the type of person it is? The type of people who are going to mark up your walls and don't care about your carpet. Uh, so you're going to get what you you know kind of put out there into the world. And so having a property that's well-maintained, turned and ready to go when you put it on the market, you're going to attract a certain type of quality resident. You can demand you know, probably top dollar rent for that property in there, which is going to bring you, you know, a, a different pool of people and then make sure you're doing thorough background checks, right? Uh, there's rules around that. You got to make sure you're following the law and, 
And that's really, really important. But, you know, make sure that, that they're going to be people who are going to pay and they're going to take care of your property and get references if you can. And that makes all the rest of it go so much better, uh, which we focus on that piece of it really, really heavily. All right, let's get into, I could keep going there and I, I kind of want to, but I want to get into your book. And then we talked a little bit about um, the market and, and these things before I hit record. So I want to get your thoughts on that because you've been through recessions. Um, you've seen it. So I want to see how, what your experience was like sure. and what you're planning as an investor and a business owner for um, you know 2024. Um, sure. But first, Rent, Rent to State Revolution. So this is a book you wrote. Um, if we were to buy that book and read it, what would we learn? So here's what it looks like right here. I don't know if it'll come in. Oh, no, my camera's on fuzzy, so it's not working <laughs> out. But anyway, Rent to State Resolution, uh, Revolution. Um, I wrote this book because I'm so passionate about this. And this is why ultimately I got into really loving real estate uh, for myself, but then wanting to share this and help others be able to do it because um, the subtitle of the book is today's key to retirement security, financial freedom, and the new American dream. Right. And I, I think every employed American across America should have real estate as part of their investment portfolio. And I'd say if they can, but I think everybody can, if they have a plan to get there. Right. And the reason for that is like retirement has changed dramatically over the last what three decades maybe um with the like unless you were are uh work for the government position right and that's about it that's like you don't have a pension and pensions used to be what people did right they they went they got a, a good job uh somewhere worked with the same company for a long time retired had a pension uh and and lived out their golden years and that's changed right? Significantly over the past 30, maybe 40 years, it started to change. And the introduction of 401ks and, and all these other kind of things that are great savings tools, but they're really not investment tools. And it's challenging and it's hard, especially with the, some of the inflation we're facing in today's world to go out there and really build a retirement nest egg that's going to allow you to live the lifestyle that you probably are wanting to live uh, in retirement. Uh, and then, you know, don't get me started on, on if you should be counting on social security down the road. And so my point with all this is people need to take retirement control in their own hands. And I'm not a retirement advisor and I'm not a financial advisor, but I'm a real estate investor and I know it can be done through real estate, right? Cause I've lived it. I've done it. I would help others do it. And so I just believe this is such a transformational tool to create long-term wealth, financial freedom and legacy uh, inside of someone's family just a huge proponent. So that's why I wrote the book, getting this word out to people. And the book takes uh, the reader through the whole process, understand the why, right? Um, and, and that's one of my favorite chapters because I think this is what opens up people's eyes on why this is so dang powerful, right? Yeah. And it's because there's four or five fundamentals around real estate investing that if you, if you think about them in the right way, you're like, wow, that does make a lot of sense. Right. And and first and foremost is the fact you can buy an investment property using other people's money. Right. And this is your business. So you you totally get that. A lot of the folks listening probably get that as well. But like just imagine if you went into your bank, traditional bank, not a private lender, 
and said, hey, I want to borrow $100,000 to buy Apple stock. Like, they're going to laugh at you, potentially have security take you out of the building because that's an insane idea. They're not going to lend you money to invest in the stock market, right? Um, you can go back in and ask for a different type of, of uh, some money for a different type of investment. They're going to throw you out. But, you know, maybe you go back in a third time and say, all right, fine. I want to borrow $100,000. I'm going to buy a house that I'm going to rent out as an investment. They're going to say, great, here you go. Like, okay. So you can buy a hundred thousand, well, you use a hundred thousand for a round number, right? Um, hard to find a hundred thousand dollar house these days, but you buy a hundred thousand dollar rental property, put down $20,000 your own money, right? There's ways to even get it for less. And, and that's, you know, probably a whole nother show, but you know, traditional lending 20% down $20,000, your own money, borrow 80,000. And guess what? The bank doesn't keep appreciation, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You get to keep the appreciation. So now you have this asset. You're leveraging the bank's money. You're leveraging now your tenant's money because when they pay you every month, they're actually paying your mortgage down for you. You're taking advantage of the appreciation that we know over time in the real estate market happens, especially long-term. And you get to depreciate the property. You get to write off the taxes. You lower your taxable income. Like It's this amazing, magical tool that's really not that hard to get into. And if you do it properly and you own the property over the long-term, like 15, 20, 30, 40 years, Again, this is a slow program, but when you're done and it's time to retire, you've got a paid off property, you got cash flow every month, and you have options, right? And the, what I mean by options is you can continue to just keep it paid off and take that cash flow monthly rent as your income, or better yet, you could refinance your property and you have tax-free income. Well, that's actually not tax-free income, tax-free money coming right. in from your property, right? There's tons of options. And um, do that a couple times over in the course of your career, It'll change the trajectory of your retirement, and I believe change the trajectory of generational wealth in your family. Uh, so that's why you wrote the book, and that's what we talk about in there. Uh, I love it. And you can tell. So let's reach in there, get your hand inside that book, and let's pull out one nugget that we could share with the the listener, or the viewer. What's one thing from the book that that they can learn to make more money, to be more successful, to be happier, whatever it is? Yeah, that's a great question, and I'm going to say it's. Um, building the right team, surrounding yourself with the right professionals, I think is the number one thing you can do because you can absolutely do this by yourself and figure it out, do some research and use trial and error. But if you want to be successful quicker, make more money, do better deals and have less stress about it, build your team, right? And that's going to be your real estate agent that understands investment real estate not just a first-time home buyer agent, but someone who really understands investment real estate, a property manager, um, optional, but I recommend it, a little biased, but good property manager, right? Um, attorney, you may need an attorney for lease agreements, whatever, especially if you're not using a property manager, a lender, those types of partnerships. If you find and vet and build that right team surrounding you, takes off a huge learning curve and every deal you can do is be more successful. Yeah, you know, that's a common theme. I, I think with like 100% of everyone that we've interviewed, the team is vital to your success. So I'm glad you pulled that nugget out because it definitely echoes what many other people have said, um, which is just evidence that it's like really that important. Right. Um, so thanks for sharing that. Now let's get into the economy quick and then we're going to have to wrap this up. You went through 2008, you bought in 2009, continue to write it down, but I'm assuming you're pretty happy with the, that purchase because you weren't at the bottom, but you were near. I think bottom hit in what, maybe 10? 
Yeah. Um, so you were pretty darn close with your timing. Um, I was buying a lot in that time as well. I took a bath. I had to bring in credit partners. I was doing whatever I could to continue to buy because I just felt that was the right time. Is that is that type of opportunity in front of us? Yeah. So I I did invest through and and live through that um, you know that last real estate downturn. Wish I bought more. I wasn't in a position to buy more. I wish I was. Um, had I been more creative about it and built the right team, I probably could have, but I didn't. I was just getting started. Um, and yeah, I mean, I had. I mentioned the one property earlier that I bought in uh, something something like 09 or ten or something, and it, it still went down. You know, I had bought my personal home I was living in at the time, which is now a rental property because I try not to ever sell real estate if I can avoid it. Um, you know, at at the peak almost, yeah, you know, I remember buying it. It was a two hundred fifty thousand dollar home. Nine months later in Phoenix, Arizona, the thing was worth like 330 or something. Well, I don't know if it was worth that. It was selling for 330, $340,000. I'm like, well, this real estate thing is awesome. Right now, I was living in it, so I didn't sell. And like a year later, it was worth 150. And that $250,000 home I bought was went down to 120 at one point. Um, I moved back to Minneapolis, but I rented out that property. I still own it today. And it took like 10 years to get back to $250,000 where I bought it. Um, and now it's, you know, doubled again nearly, right? So it's ultimately it's good investment, but it's that long-term piece. And so I've had several properties like that. We've had to weather the storm. But again, my philosophy is fairly conservative um, on these homes. Fixed rate financing, as long a term as I can possibly get, um, then I know I can weather almost any storm and I don't have to sell properties. And if you can keep them rented, um, you know, you're in good shape. And that's what we did. So on paper, there was a long time that I had ne ne negative equity um, in, in these properties. And it never really bothered me because we kept it rented and the payments were covered. And it was like, I'm not banking on the money today. I'm banking on the money in 20, 30 years. And, and so it's all working out. So I've done that. Do I see that coming? Man, I think that there's going to be a lot of unique opportunity in the market in 2024 and 2025. And if you ask me to pinpoint exactly what that was, I just don't know. Um, this is a really interesting economy we're in at a really unique real estate market. I'd say we've never seen it before, but there's some similarities to the early eighties when interest rates rose tremendously, but it's even different from that uh, because of how low they were previously. So the, tr the trouble we're facing is, you know, 12 to 18 months ago, Almost a majority of people, probably not almost everyone, a majority of people were predicting, you know, massive real estate, real estate price adjustments, value adjustments down. Mm -hmm. Sorry. I really wasn't buying that yep. because what I thought was happening was we weren't going to have any inventory. And that's what's proven out to be, right? That's we were, we were low I inventory coming out of COVID. Where's the inventory going to come from? I, yeah. I hear those predictions. I'm like, okay, you, you explain this to me. I mean, supply and demand, that's economics. It's pretty simple. Where right. is it coming from? And, and right. no one could ever answer. Right. And so, oh, you know, we were already demand, low right? supply come out of COVID. These interest rate changes happened. And now we've got t tens and tens of millions of homeowners across America locked in at sub 3% mortgage yeah. rates. Like, you don't, you don't move for fun anymore. You know, a couple of years ago, five years ago, I, I call it moving for fun. I don't know what it's really called. But, you know, you might live in this neighborhood and say, you know, it'd be cool to have a pool. Rather than put a pool yeah. in, let's go move a couple blocks down, a couple miles down, same school district, get a house bigger with the pool. Like, why not? We can afford it. You're not doing that today. 
you're going to double, triple your payment, right? And so people are staying. That inventory is not coming on. So I don't see prices adjusting nationally. There's going to be pockets, of course, where there's sure. price adjustments. Um, there's increased demand for rentals. Uh, and interest rates are questionable. What's going to happen? So I think where's the opportunity to sum up my thoughts on this is for entrepreneurial investors, small local retail investors, I think they can beat these institutional hedge funds that we talked about earlier all day long on deals because you can buy one home, go in, maybe it's likely going to be a distressed property, go in, fix it up, turn it into a rental. That's the way the numbers pencil today to be able to put leverage on a home with these high interest rates. You got to get a, a, a discount property, put some work into it, turn it around and rent it. And I think we're going to see tremendous opportunity there, which is right up Pine Financial's alley. Um, because that's the way deals are going to get done, I think, in 2024, in the beginning of 2025. And frankly, these institutions that we started talking about on, at the beginning of the podcast, they're on the sideline. They're not buying and they're not going to do those kind of deals. And I think that's where uh, the gold is going to be. So again, build that team, find the agents that can find this inventory, have the contractors in place, um, do some sweat equity yourself, and uh, you can get some good deals out there. I, yeah, I don't have much to add. I mean, we're we're seeing more creative stuff because of the low interest rates. So like the owner carry type stuff, uh, contract for deed, and especially in Minneapolis, that's pretty big. Yeah, that kind of stuff. But I, I totally agree with you. It's it's distress. It's either going to be distressed situations like divorces, or and that's just an example. But anything that could cause sure. financial distress or distressed properties. That's that's what we're going to see. And it's it's tougher now. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and sugarcoat this, guys. It's not going to be as easy as it was in 2010, 11, and 12, right? This is this is a challenging market to be successful in. The good news is you can still be successful. And when we get through the other side, you're going to be separating yourself from everybody else. And that's really where true wealth is built. So can you be successful now? Then you're going to be even more successful when the inventory loosens up, whatever creates that. And right. I have no idea. I have no idea what it's going to be. I was always told that high interest rates would would create the inventory. And, and now that actually looks like maybe that is preventing the inventory. So who, who knows, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, well, with that, I'm going to say this, Kevin. So I got a lot out of it. I took some notes here. Um, institutional investors, don't worry, guys. They're 3% of the total rental market, not housing stock, but just the rental market. Um, clean properties, I could not agree with you more. If you have good, clean properties, you're going to attract that type of tenant. And let's face it, man, you're going to get more monthly than if you were, you could say, hey, fixer upper, I'll, you can paint the wall, I'll paint the wall for you, or we'll take it out of deposit. You can get creative with all of that stuff, but you're still going to get a less per month, I think. Uh, you did not say that, that was my words. What you said was the clean <laughs> properties is going to attract clean tenants. Yeah. Um, good tenants is the most important piece of this entire thing. Everyone and or everyone could and should own real estate, and your book will help them do that. So, Rent Estate Revolution, which you're going to tell us how to get that uh, book in a minute. Building the right team, one of the number one. That's the nugget you built out. You you pulled out of your book, um, and I echoed that. And then look, if you're in this for the long haul, um, you're going to be able to ride out the storms. You know that that markets adjust. They breathe, right? They go up, they go down, they go up, they go down. But over the long run, you're telling me that I'm going to be safe as long as I have a long enough horizon. Anything I missed there, man? Anything else you want to add before we wrap this up? No, that was a great summary. Uh, you're a good note taker. And thanks for having me on. 
the podcast. This was uh, this was a lot of fun. I I, uh, I enjoy these conversations and uh, you know talking with folks about this stuff. I get passionate about it, excited because it's just me too. It'd be fun. It's a lot of work. It's hard, but I love when people finally make that plunge and do that and go from you know having zero investment real estate to one. And I think getting over the hump from one to two is almost as hard as from zero to one. But then kind of once you get to that two, people are unstoppable and they and they just keep going. And, and uh, so we're here to help people do that. I know you are as well. So always great having the conversation. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, appreciate you so much, Kevin. <clears throat> I know we both got busy schedules and we made it work. So thank you for that. How do people get a hold of you to get your book and or learn more about um, Renters Warehouse? Yeah, sure. If you're interested in the book, and dive in deeper into the stories we talked about here on the podcast, uh, go to rent estate, like real estate, but rentestaterevolution.com, or you can get it on Amazon. Just go to amazon.com, check out Rent Estate Revolution or my name, Kevin Orton, or the book will pull up there. Uh, we appreciate the support and hope we can continue to spread the word. And then uh, if you want to learn more about Renters Warehouse, uh, get in contact with me, et cetera, just go to renterswarehouse.com. And I have your LinkedIn here. So we're going to put that and all the other contact information, the book, the, the management company, all in the show notes. Um, so I'm going to close out here, Kevin. Again, thank you so much for joining me. I know we went a little bit long, but I, I think the conversation was just, it just warranted that. So I appreciate you sticking with me. For the listener, thank you so much. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. And we are here for you. So if you're enjoying what you are hearing, if you like the episode, if you like Kevin's story, please give us a five-star review. And with that, I hope you make this day a great one. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. If you did, please be sure to follow and leave us a review. Oh yeah, and tell a friend.